0: Welcome to the Cultural Cultivators podcast by Malay Creative and Cultivate Labs, where we explore the diverse and dynamic world of Filipino-American culture. In each episode, we delve into various aspects of film culture and speak with leaders, artists, and creators who are shaping and pushing the boundaries of their respective fields. If this is your first time hearing my voice, my name is John Reyes. I'm the co-producer and editor of Cultural Cultivators. This is a very special episode where our host, Nicole Saliver, reflects on 20 episodes of this podcast with her mentor and the very first guest of this podcast, Dr. Allison Titianco Kubalez. Before we get into it, at the beginning of every interview, Nicole invites the guest to call in an ancestor to ground the conversation. For today's episode, I would like to call in Reynaldo Timosa Nevosio Jr., also known as Mr. Ray. He was a proud father, son, uncle, brother, and friend. Professionally, he was a talented producer, MC, filmmaker, organizer, and a pillar of San Francisco's Filipino-American creative community. Underneath us is a production from his 2020 release, Wonders and Mysticisms, where his liner notes remind us, Let your actions be prayer. Let your creations be prayer. Let your exchanges be prayer. Let your life be prayer. And let all your prayer be powerful. Nicole Saliver is a creative multi-hefinite from San Francisco with over two decades of experience in the events, creative, and theater realm from solo performance, new media production, filmmaking, screenplay writing, and event production. Her full-length solo show, Forgetting the Details, has captivated audience from New York to San Francisco. As a stand-up comic, she shared the stage with icons Hassan Minaj. Ali Wong, and Dave Chappelle. Today, she is currently the program director of Balai Creative and the host and co-producer of this podcast. In this conversation, Nicole explains how Bindlestiff allowed her to develop her love for acting.
1: My work through Bindlestiff, it really started to hone in this idea of, oh, I get to, one, work on a craft that I hella adore and respect and just like I feel like it gives me life and there's something about being on stage as an actor that you feel this exchange of energy with your audience and it's not just an ego thing yes of course when they clap or laugh or you know feel emotional when you're being dramatic your ego is like yeah that's cool but there's something on a spiritual level that I felt as an actor that I really connected to people in the audience. It's like this exchange of energy that I've only felt when I'm acting.
0: Also in this conversation, Nicole reflects on her experiences hosting and producing this podcast. She describes how her time in New York shaped her as an artist and how directing and writing for her cousins, aka bossing her cousins around, led her down this path of creating. You can find Nicole on Instagram, at Kindred Kapwa.
1: Hi, Nicole. Hi, Ate. I know, I keep calling you Ate, and I have to, like, train my brain to say, Dr. Allison
2: Tintianku Kubale. Wow, this is a weird way to start this <laughs> podcast, but you really don't ever have to call me that. I mean, it's already endearing enough to be called Ate. You can call me Allison if you want. I don't want it to be, like you have to say doctor. I've never forced anyone to do that except people who oppress me. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go ahead and get started. Oh. This time, I get to interview you. Yes. I'm so, so thrilled to do this, and I feel really honored that I get to be the one to do that. To be able to see you for who you are and why you do what you do and to be able to share that with the world is amazing. And I'm very, very excited to be the one to be able to shepherd or steward you into that conversation. But we're going to begin just the way you began with me, by asking you for this podcast, this specific episode, who are some ancestors that you'd like to bring into our dialogue? Thanks, Ate. I first want to... Just show you so
1: much gratitude. It really was because of you and your Filipino American literature class that I'm doing things like this. So it is a complete full circle moment. And I know I've said this a billion times on this podcast, but we love a full circle moment on here. So to answer your question, Ate. I wanna call in my uncle Patrick Saliver, who without him I also would not be here doing anything with media, art or activism. And my father, Max Villanueva, who, you know, pushed me to continue to do art, to not work for the man and you know, to fight
2: the oppressor. To not work for the man. I love that. That really is the language of that generation both your uncle and your dad, and I want to thank both of them for a couple of things, for building, you know, building a community, building a movement in which we actually get to live the benefits of that movement, the Third World Liberation Front, Third World Liberation Strike, and, you know, the result being the birth of ethnic studies I also want to thank your dad for giving you lots of material to do your work. (laughs) (laughs) I do remember a show that you created many, many moons ago that really centered your dad's experience. And I didn't know your dad well, but I learned about your dad through you. And so I feel like you embody both of them, you know, like you, you quite literally embody them because the work that you do is a representation or an extension of their work and who they are as people. So I'd love to bring them into the space with us and be in conversation with us throughout. Let's talk a little bit about the influence of those two and also other people in your family and community and talk about how they impacted like who you became as a person.
1: I get a lot of my humor from my dad and sort of this big picture idealism from my father too. He essentially would take me to movies that weren't age appropriate and like make me watch these like stand up specials with him. So a lot of my artistry and my writing comes from his personality. And then as far as my uncle goes, a lot of his community work and activism. And also just this care that he had for his community and not just Filipinos, but also people that in his immediate community all the neighborhood kids he would buy bikes for you know used bikes ones he would find in garage sales but he was really great at building this beautiful community wherever he went and i think that really also shows in the time that he spent at sf state building pace and creating that organization from scratch and literally just running up to any Filipino he saw on campus and saying, Hey, are you Filipino? Great, you're part of PACE now. Come to our first meeting. So those two definitely shaped me. I also want to give recognition to the other disruptors in my family. I think I come from a long line of folks who push back on the status quo and resist tools of the oppressor. Like my great-grandfather, who I didn't even meet, but I was reading letters from my grandma during the pandemic, and she recalls this story. Actually, two notable stories of my great-grandfather. One, so when Spain colonized the Philippines, they built a bowling alley in his town, but they wouldn't allow Filipinos to enter. And so him being the mayor of Dipolog uh, in Mindanao, he actually went there and he found the owners and beat them up. (laughs) And he said, there's no way you're going to have a bowling alley in my town and not allow Filipinos. (laughs) So that was one huge way he disrupted racism and oppression and colonization in his own town. And the second one was he actually wanted to be a priest, a Catholic priest. But during his time in missionary, he noticed a lot of wrongdoing in the Catholic church and things that were a little bit shady. And so in order to disrupt and push back on that, he started his own Presbyterian church, the like first Presbyterian <laughs> church in the Philippines, actually. And he built it right across the street from the Catholic Church in his town. So those are the kind of things like my ancestors did to disrupt and stand up to oppressors and things that they saw as wrong and negative in their communities. And so that just trickles down to my grandmother, to my grandfather. And I also come from a family of artists. My grandpa was a drummer for a big band who performed at all the taxi dance halls around the country for the Monongs. My grandma was an organist. My father was a musician. My mom was a dancer, samba dancer for many decades and performed with Carlos Santana. So all of those people and ancestors and family members have shaped who I am today and this idea that we can really manifest anything and push back against these narratives that we're not enough, that we don't deserve certain things, especially freedom and equality, and that we can utilize our art in beautiful ways.
2: Oh, I love that. You really come from an amazing family, a badass family. You used to really... Important word, you called them disruptors. And I think about that word and how necessary that is to get any kind of real change in the world. So I'm going to ask you, how do you see yourself as a disruptor?
1: Several ways. But one of them really, I think, came to me during the pandemic. So I was in New York working as an actor, which really means like doing odd jobs in between acting kings, being a waiter, working for a real estate company. And so I was doing the New York industry hustle for 10 years. And during the pandemic, everything had to stop because of lockdown. We couldn't film on set. We could audition, but there was nothing to film for almost three years And so during that time, I had so much time to myself. One, we moved back to California to be closer to family. And two, because I was sort of taken out of this day-to-day hustle that capitalism (laughs) pushes most actors into, it really gave me this opportunity to have a profound realization That despite all my efforts of working in the rat race and working in the entertainment industry, I was hitting the ceiling that systemic racism creates in Hollywood, right? And it became really clear to me that no matter how much I did or how many credits I received or how much I wrote or how much talent I had, there's no room for diverse voices like myself, and Asians that look like me, with darker skin tones, with flatter noses, with parents who are immigrants. So winning an Oscar or landing or booking a big gig was really unattainable for me. You know, the biggest gig I got in New York was being a nurse on New Amsterdam, which is really like, shout out to all my nurses, but also like, that's such a stereotype. (laughs) And so... In the pandemic, I realized things need to change still. It's 2020 and things still need to change. And so instead of just advocating for a place at this existing table, so to speak, I resolved to really take action to create a new one. All of that to say, the work that I do now, whether it's producing this podcast or working for Poly Creative, really is stepping stones for me to building that table for filipino americans challenging the status quo disrupting these colonized and racist stereotypes of filipinos in this industry and really giving a voice to underrepresented and those that need and want other folks to like hear their stories i think that's one of the biggest tools of the oppressor to tell us that we're not enough and we don't deserve to share our truth.
2: I love that. I love all the things that you said, because at the end of the day, if we don't disrupt or we don't attempt to disrupt, it's just going to be the same. So this building the table Well, that's one of my metaphors all the time, like, you know, like, if we can't get a seat at that table, we got to build our own. And so what's this table? Like, what's this table look like for you? What are you building? Like, beyond, and we're going to talk about this podcast, but beyond the podcast, like, what's the big goal? What's the end goal? Again, it's like this big picture idealism
1: that I have rooted from my father, but you know what? Go big or go home. (laughs) (laughs) For me, the table looks like many things. The table looks like a space for our people to create in ways that aren't stifling and restrictive. The table is healing generational trauma and ancestral trauma that was like caked into our patterning sense. I don't know, thousands of years ago since colonization even started in the Philippines. The table also looks like our children being able to believe in themselves in the ways that we weren't able to voice their opinions and their truths and be proud of who they are. Unlike my mother's generation where they had to assimilate and not even learn their own language, because of racism here in America. And the table also for me just looks like a safe space for folks to make mistakes and create. And maybe it looks messy to create what they want to create, but you know what? That's just art. Like it gets to be messy and it gets to be beautiful and it gets to be everything in between. So not stifling that either. And really working with our ancestors. I think that's one of the biggest lessons I learned in the past 10 years in my decolonization journey and re-indigenizing journey is working with my ancestors is not evil. (laughs) It's not like me working with the devil. It's me working with people that have come before me and understanding and celebrating their wins, their lives, their sacrifices, their struggles And knowing that I
2: stand on the shoulders of giants. You do. You definitely do. Your family and community, you know, like you definitely stand on the shoulders of giants. I got some random questions. We're going to slow it down just a tiny bit. What episode of New Amsterdam did you play a nurse? Do you remember what season? Oh, no, I don't remember. But I think it was like season two or three.
1: I'm in a lot of those (laughs) episodes. (laughs) you'll see me constantly walking down the halls treating patients (laughs) I remember one of my favorite episodes to film Lucy Liu was directing so I'm sure you can find that on IMDB which episode number but Lucy Liu was directing and you know at the time I hadn't yet stepped into my role as a filmmaker I was just acting and writing and so I was like literally following her around set like a lost be your fangirl like watching her every move as a director like oh what is she gonna do here and what i loved about her way of directing because she's an actress she really knew how to speak to the actors and they have consultants on there you know talking about the medical language vocabulary that the actors need to have but she really spoke to the actors in the way that they could understand instead of like typically directing them and say this line this way. She knew how to speak to them in order to really respect their craft. And that's what I really enjoyed about working with her and watching her. And she was so lovely and very gracious. And, you know, on there, you're not supposed to ask for pictures and stuff. So I did not But I did talk to her a little bit in between setups and she was so nice about it. And she's just been in the game for so long. It was really, like, nice To see someone who I respected as a young actress in the 90s, (laughs) now directing me and New Amsterdam.
2: Lucy Liu was a thing. Yes. Not just a person, but a thing in a moment for many of us when we saw her on the screen, you know, and when we saw her, you know, like play these roles of not just being just, you know, like submissive. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Lucy Liu is a thing. What is it like being an actress? And what draws you to want to continue to be an actress? I know that it's very different now. You know, like you're doing different things. But something drew you to wanting to perform to be an actress. And what was that?
1: The very first time I acted in anything before, like school plays or musicals, was actually my Uncle Pat, the one I spoke about before. In the 90s, he had this huge VHS camcorder. You know, the ones that weigh as much as a watermelon. <laughs> yeah, You literally had to like rest it on your shoulder because it was so big. And he noticed one summer because I would spend all my summers there. My mother was a single mom and in order for her to work. She would ship me down to L.A. to be taken care of by my Uncle Pat and hang out with my cousins. And one summer he noticed that we were bored. And so he said, you know what, this summer... All of you have to either create your own television station, meaning like commercials, shows, music videos, or I'm going to put you to work in the backyard and you're going to have to weed all of it. And of course, you know, like, is it manual labor that we're going to do or just mess around with Uncle Pat's VHS camcorder? (laughs) So we opted to make our own television station channel and we I went into it. Like sometimes my cousins didn't want to record, but I would be writing sketches, music videos, reenacting like Whitney Houston, music videos, Aladdin, everything and anything. And I remember having so much joy from it. And my cousins got bored, I think after the second week, but like that whole summer I was creating. And that was the thing that really like ignited inside of me. You know, I, again, my, Both my parents are artists, my dad's a musician, my mother is a dancer, and they really wanted me to do those things. I remember being a kid, like going to dance class, ballet, tap, jazz, going to painting class because my dad's also a painter, picking up the flute, the piano, doing the piano, and I hated all of it. But it wasn't until I started creating sketches and writing and acting in those things that I felt, oh, this is the thing. This is my art form. And so from then on, it was just like this inner passion that was on fire in me. And soon, you know, I was auditioning for school plays, and then college came around, and I was in the PCN. (laughs) Anyone that... Goes to college in the Bay, understands what that means. (laughs) Filipino cultural night. And then I also found out about Bindlestiff during my days at SF State because of you and the other professors. And so my work through Bindlestiff, it really started to hone in this idea of, oh, I get to, one, work on a craft that I hella adore and respect and just like I feel like it gives me life and there's something about being on stage as an actor that you feel this exchange of energy with your audience and it's not just an ego thing yes of course when they clap or laugh or you know feel emotional when you're being dramatic your ego is like yeah that's cool but there's something on a spiritual level that I felt as an actor that I really connected to people in the audience. It's like this exchange of energy that I've only felt when I'm acting. I'm also really a shy person and introverted. So for me to become a character just feels so much better (laughs) than being myself on stage. And it's really weird.
2: I think that's a trip that you say you're shy and introverted. I don't see you that way. Even from the beginning, having you as a young student, I didn't see you that way. But then sometimes those things live with us, you know, like we're like, okay, the energy to be able to talk to somebody, the energy to be able to create relationships, the energy to get on a stage, you know, like that's all amazing and very hard sometimes when you see yourself as being shy. I love the journey. I'm really trying to not ask you a hundred more questions about the journey, but I want to ask you how you end up in New York. Mm. Even though my parents were artists, there was still
1: this messaging and conditioning from both of my parents that you cannot make money being an artist. You have to have a full-time gig job nine to five, and then you can be an artist on the weekends, (laughs) you know, like you could be more like a hobby. And I think that's, what happens a lot to creatives here in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's a great space to hone your craft, but not really make money from your craft. And so my dream was always either moving to LA or New York. And I worked this nine to five, really stable nine to five in a nonprofit for seven years that I said I was only going to work for a year. And then I ended up like getting promoted and promoted. soon I was like, Running the events and bringing in millions of dollars for this nonprofit. And I was doing all my art on the weekends, doing stand up at the punchline whenever I had a free night to do it. And then quite suddenly, my father passed away in 2011. And the last time I spoke to him and got to see him in person before he suddenly had a stroke and died was Father's Day, June 2011, and that day he told me, move to New York, Nicole. Life is too short. Do your art. Create. Follow your heart. Don't just, like, live to work a nine-to-five to make other people rich. Don't work for the man. Just do your art. And then he passed away. It woke me up because I think I was in this dream, this like zombie state of capitalism, satisfied with doing art whenever I had time to do it, but everything else came first. And then when he died, it was this sudden realization that I don't know when I'm going to pass away. My dad died, I think at 58 years old, really young. And I was like, fuck this. (laughs) My dad's right. I don't know if I'm going to pass away from a car crash or whatever. We don't know. So I didn't want to live my life one, regretting that I didn't even try. And two, just fucking getting out of my comfort zone. I had lived in the Bay Area my whole life, and I love the Bay. My family's here. All my best friends are here. But I knew after my dad passed away that there was an opportunity for me to grow even further that I couldn't even fathom by moving to New York. And so I bought a one-way ticket and I sold all my things. I quit my job. My mom was so mad at me. It was the biggest fight we had ever gotten into. I remember her saying, I'm not giving you any money unless it's for a ticket back home. And I said, that's fine. I will just work 3,000 odd jobs. I don't care. I'm just going to do this. And you know, if I fail, I fail. But I ended up living there for 10 years. And I also understood I need to define my own level of success. I can't allow Hollywood to define that for me. So while I was out there, you know, yeah, I didn't book the huge movie role that I originally wanted. I didn't do all the things, win an Oscar, you know, but then I started to realize, oh, I'm not a corporate artist. I'm also not fucking white. So (laughs) those opportunities aren't readily available to someone that looks like me, who thinks like me, that comes from a family like mine. I'm too much of a disruptor, possibly for Hollywood to even accept me as I am who I truly am. And for the longest time, I was like, oh, I'll just conform to what they want me to be. I remember going on several auditions in my first two years of being in New York, and even managers would be like, oh, we already have an Asian person. We can't add you to our roster yet they had like 23 white guys that all look the same you know it's like oh it's okay to have bill ted and kevin that all fucking look the same and could go all for the same role but you have one asian person like how fucking racist is that (laughs) that's not even we're not even the same kind of asian (laughs) and so my dad's death really was the catalyst for me to one go for my dreams, and two, gave me permission to stop living a life for others and really start to define what my level of success is. I learned so much through that transition in my life. And if it wasn't for him and his last dying words, which I also got on tape, surprisingly, shockingly, I I watch it every time his death anniversary comes up or his birthday comes up to continue to, like, guide me. If it wasn't for him and those words, I don't think I would be where I am today.
2: New York. I don't think I ever understood your move to New York, and so this was really important for me to hear. Very emotional to hear that it had to do with your dad's passing that led you to a journey to New York. First off, It's so inspirational for young people who are listening to this podcast right now to hear someone talk about taking a risk and leaving all the comfort to go pursue a dream that was not for sure. So you get to New York, and I don't know how many years you thought you were going to stay there, but you stayed there for a decade what during that time in New York defines who you are now? It allowed me to get out of
1: my comfort zone. Like you said, take the fucking risk. I think so many of us, especially Asian Americans in California, are so stuck in our comfort that taking that initial risk is even like, no way. Why would I do that? But that's where it, it just keeps us in this space of non-growth, right? Like you're just stuck. And I realized that now living in New York for 10 years. One, I struggled. I struggled so much those first three, four years. I was working three odd jobs. I didn't have any family in New York. I didn't have a support system in New York. I didn't have jobs lined up for me. You know, I didn't have connections in that way. None of my family members were actors or writers or in the industry. So I didn't have that safety net when I moved to New York. And so I had to work three part-time jobs. I had to be a waitress for the first time, which I highly suggest for any young person. (laughs) You learn so much about yourself and humanity by being a waiter. It was a cupcake cafe and bar called Sweet Revenge. (laughs) Wow, (laughs) that's a cool name. (laughs) Um, And I met such interesting people. You know, Louis C.K. would come in there, Claire Danes. It was in the West Village. So a lot of celebrities live in the West Village. A lot of comedians work in the West Village and so would be waiting on celebrities all the time. Uh, So it was really interesting in that way. Not only is it making me resourceful (laughs) and having to, like, strengthen myself and overcome all these, like, struggles, because you don't own a car in New York, you're having a commute through snow, you know, you're buying groceries by just what you can carry. You're freaking doing your laundry outside of your building in the rain. It's like all these things that build character, right? That you don't realize until you leave home. (laughs) So not only am I building character, but I was also close friends with a celebrity during that decade. I was in New York. And so I had access to green rooms to events to other people, celebrities, that were kind of like mind-blowing experiences. So I remember one time dancing with Tyson Beckford during New York Fashion Week (laughs) and also having drinks with Jessica Alba and her friends during that same week. It's just the kinds of things that happen in New York. Are just these magical epic experiences that I'm sure your daughter is going to start to manifest for herself in New York. And that's the thing about New York. San Francisco is a beautiful place to hone your craft, but New York once, you know, you kind of go through the hazing phase of New York City, she just opens her doors to you. And she's like this magical auntie that's like, "What
2: do you want?" Okay. Wow. Here. I love that. I mean, actually, our first summer trips to New York for New York Dance Alliance, I'd hit you up. I called you. We hung out, ate at some pretty good restaurants, <laughs> you know. And to me, I was watching you enjoy yourself. I mean, I didn't see all the struggle because I didn't, you know, I didn't do laundry with you. But, like, I, <laughs> I remember going, oh, Nicole's having a good old time here in New York. I didn't think you were going to come back to the Bay. You were a New Yorker now. I'm thinking about the things that you described, the things that created character. Is there a moment or an event or a situation in New York that inspired you to become who you are today?
1: Yes. I mean, there's many. One of the biggest acting gigs I got <laughs> was this really weird industrial. Industrial meaning it's not for public consumption. Um, It's for either a corporation utilizes the footage and the media for their own corporate needs, or they use it for other things. And so I booked this industrial. I was one of the main people, the show, they called it a show, is a comedy show. And they send it overseas so that people can learn English from it through a company called Wall Street English. And we had to film 60 episodes, half hour episodes, six zero. So essentially like five seasons, five or six seasons of the show all within a year. So it was like the Olympics of acting. I had to literally memorize 30 pages of script every night. I had stopped drinking i became sober i didn't go out for that year (laughs) it was like i'm going to focus and if you fucked up on set or you did not memorize the right line oh you would hear it from the producers people got fired all the time on that show because they weren't memorizing or saying the lines correctly and so because i was one of the leads I had some kind of cushion, like they couldn't just fire me after one fuck up, but they definitely gave me a stern talking to and deducted pay. I also had to deal with a director who was sexually harassing all the actresses and pitting them against each other on set. And so I had to not only learn a lot because it was like the Olympics of acting and memorizing lines. But I learned a lot about on-set dynamics and what it's like to work in a hostile work environment and not have the power to do anything about it. Because it was an industrial, you know, it's not under SAG worker rights. (laughs) So there was no one to tell about because the producer was his friend. So... (laughs) There was no one I could tell about the sexual harassment that he was giving all of us actresses, especially the leads. So I learned a lot through the industry, through that experience. I also learned, because I'm now going into filmmaking, how I want to create environment on set, how I want all my sets to be a safe space. And I also learned just as a woman of color, the importance of like, fuck that. You know, like, I think now, if I was in that situation, I would just quit. <laughs> but because I was like young and hungry for work, I went through it. And I remember being on set and having to push the tears back because so much of the crew relied on me being on and being on top of my work. And it wasn't just this director, but I was friends with a lot of the crew members. And so I remember, you know, before we would go into makeup and hair and wardrobe, being on the set and meditating and praying to God that this opportunity, no matter how shitty it was this year, would open me up to something even bigger and better. I don't know what that would be, but praying that I was here for a reason. Fast forward Two, three years later, and I get this brilliant idea, because it's a industrial, to hit up the head of Wall Street English, these the people that actually bought this show and are now using it in countries all over the world, 29 countries all over the world, to hit up the corporate office and offer my services as one of the lead actors and visit the different Wall Street Englishes around the world as... from Wall Street English, because they're literally watching me every day in, in this show for 60 episodes. And they said yes. And so in 2018, they paid for my world tour to go all over Korea, China, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, Hong Kong, France, you know, I went all over the world on their dime and I got to meet all my fans. It was freaking mind-blowing. I got to see, like, I have billboards of myself up in Thailand. There's cutouts of me in Korea and the mall. You know, I had, like, fans in China recognize me in the bathroom. It was insane. I still have fans hit me up uh, on my Instagram and this is why I also have to change my name every couple of years <laughs> because I get like these crazy fans from all over the world, you know, wanting my address and wanting to send me things. And I'm like, no, it's okay. <laughs> and so because of that experience, I also learned a lot about my own power as a manifester and someone that can basically manifest things out of shitty situations, and they didn't ask
2: any of the other
1: actors to do this.
2: Wow, you manifested, I, you womanif yeah. woman I can't even yeah. say it. Womanifested, you manifested that. Yes. Okay, yes. <laughs> I was like, fabulous. Fuck
1: this, dude. I'm not gonna let his bullshit dictate what I think is possible for me.
2: I am learning so much about you and I'm getting more and more inspired. And I'm thinking about this idea of manifest. And we we talked a little bit about this before we got on the episode, this idea of manifesting, which I think is funny because I totally thought you were talking about the manifest show. (laughs) And you're talking about real manifesting. (laughs) I have a feeling that you manifested most of your life. Manifested the opportunities, absolutely. Probably manifested the journey in some ways. And and every time you got a chance to actually see your power, you manifested. And then you manifested this podcast. You made it happen. So, where did this all come from? What is the origin story
1: of the podcast? We came back to California during the pandemic because if you remember in 2020, March 2020, New York City became ground zero. It didn't get this scary here in California, but it got fucking scary in New York where there were freezer trucks of dead bodies, people at our church were getting COVID and dying, my husband got COVID, and he thought he was dying, I thought he was dying, and the hospitals were so backed up they wouldn't even see him. And so once he recovered and tested negative, I was like, let's get the f- out of here, This is not worth all this hustle and epic, you know, stories of New York. It is not worth us dying out here and our family not even being able to attend a funeral. What if this gets to California and our parents die from this and we're stuck in New York because of the lockdown? Because at that time they were starting to ground flights and we're just like, forget it, let's just leave. We literally left all our possessions booked a one-way ticket back to California and spent all our time in lockdown, which was like three months in California with our families. And I remember that vividly because at the time, no one was wearing masks. People were like, oh, this is going to be fine. It's going to go away. (laughs) And it really, again, gave me a pause and really gave me time to reflect on my life. Like, what am I leaving? Just a bunch of episodes on New Amsterdam, Wall Street English. I'm teaching people English. Great. But what else am I leaving? What legacy am I leaving? This also came during a time when we had nothing to do during lockdown except read, you know, binge shows, maybe take a hike in California, son. But one of the things that I found while cleaning my mom's house, because I just am like that <laughs> when I get bored, I like to clean. I found all these letters for my grandma, all these beautiful letters from the 80s and 90s talking about her life, her dad's life, all the things that happened, all the things she accomplished, how she felt about certain things. All these stories, like even stories that I didn't even know. Like my great, 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 great grandfather was a Muslim chieftain who owned a lot of Dipolog. And, you know, kids in Dipolog would be scared of the stories of him. <laughs> and the Yayas would tell the kids, you know, if you don't behave, Datu is gonna cut off your head with his bolo, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it was like wild stuff like that. I learned about my grandpa starting the first Presbyterian church and him, you know, fighting the people that own that racist bowling alley. I just so learned a lot about my family history and legacy that through those letters, it really dawned on me. What am I leaving when I pass away? Because you're also facing mortality because of COVID, right? Like if I die, Next year of COVID, what did I leave? And so because of that, me and my husband started trying for a baby again. And we had been trying for a year and nothing was happening. And then we finally got pregnant in 2021. And my son actually was the inspiration and impetus for this podcast. He once I became pregnant, w- one of the things that I was very um, cognizant to was okay, I can't be on set. <laughs> you know standing on my feet 24 hours, <laughs> you know uh, it's not feasible practical for me to be hella pregnant on set right now because I was filmmaking it I had made like three short films was applying to Sundance, directing collab program. And so I told myself, okay, well, if I'm not going to be on set while I'm pregnant and I also probably need maternity leave, what do I want to apply for right now? And, you know, there's all these jobs in tech in the Bay. And I was like, no, I really want to focus on a job that centers community because my grandparents and my uncle were all activists within the community They really brought in all these beautiful things into the San Francisco Filipino-American community. And so I was like, I really want to be intentional about this. I want a job that's helping the Filipinos and folks in my culture and heritage here in San Francisco. And then literally a week later, I saw a job opening for a Balai Creative. And I ran into Desi, who's the ED of Balai Creative, And I said, hey, I I saw that you have the shop opening. Should I apply? Did you find anyone? He was like, no, we've looked for six months. We haven't found anyone. Can you please apply? And so when I applied, I created this deck because I just love creating decks. And one of the things, one of the pages in the deck was starting a podcast. Knowing that Cultivate Labs and Black Creative have so many artists under their roster So many beautiful creatives and movers and shakers and also disruptors in their sphere of community and their kapwa was really inspiring to me. I didn't even think I would be hosting it. I didn't actually want to host it. I just thought it would be a great idea for them to start their own podcast. To have you know more of a virtual community for folks to come in to see what kind of work they're doing, and that's what I put in there in my um, application deck, and I showed Desi, and he was like, "Oh yeah, that's a great idea." And then I got the first grant, and then I got a second grant, and then I got a third grant for the podcast, and then it was like, "Oh shoot, I guess I should be hosting it." <laughs> so really, this podcast came about because one, my son. I was pregnant with my son. And two, I wanted to utilize the connections that Cultivate Labs already had to folks in the community. And three, I wanted to leave a love letter for my son so that when he's my age or maybe even 18 years old, he can listen to these episodes and not only be inspired by the folks I interview, but sort of awaken in ways that normal media doesn't really do for folks like us.
2: Mainstream media doesn't do this for us. Let's talk a little bit about the podcast interviews that you've done. Like who are the people who have been on these podcasts?
1: You know, it's always so surprising when I ask someone and then they say yes. I'm always like a little bit shocked (laughs) and taken aback, but so grateful. One of them being your uh, connection is Josh De La Cruz from Blue's Clues. I think I am like the coolest mom because I got to get him on my podcast. (laughs) My son watches him every day, almost every day. So he was one of our first episodes. You, of course, were number one, great foundation. And then we also had Ruby Ibarra. She was number two. We had Serena Bolden, who... She's a footballer on the Philippines Women's World Cup team. We also just had Ella J. Bosco, who is in Birds of Prey, one of the lead roles in a huge Hollywood blockbuster comic book movie. We also have folks, musicians like Nick Bo and WIDA, who are creative growth grantees from Bly Creative. We have so many different kinds of Filipino-Americans and all with such great stories, great inspiring journeys that I always say it's hard to have a favorite. And then I interview someone and I'm like, oh, they're my favorite. (laughs) It's like every week I have a new favorite episode.
2: Right now you're my favorite. (laughs) Let me ask a little bit about the learnings from the individuals. Like, What are some of the things that people said on these podcasts that... Did something for you, or inspired you, or or made you think, or you're like, wow, this is really why I'm doing this. Shout out to John Reyes, who's my co-producer
1: and editor, and has really just held me down during this whole process. You know, when I first started this podcast, like I said, I didn't want to host it, and I thought, oh, if I have a co-host, it's kind of like this crutch. <laughs> I had all these feelings of not enoughness, but working with John has really not only boosted my confidence as a producer and podcast host, but really gave me the safe space to say what I want to say. So it was actually his idea for every episode to have me come on and summarize the biggest lesson I learned through that individual interview. And so after every episode, I sort of culminate the episode with a lesson learned. And one of the biggest overarching one is how we are mirrors for each other. And a lot of times during my interviews, not only am I seeing them and their truth, but they're mirroring back the truth and stories and feelings I felt as a Filipino American and in the diaspora and seeing that, like, I'm not alone. And I love having that especially for my listeners, and it's so funny, we download the reports every week and we have listeners in South Africa, in Wisconsin, in Missouri, and, you know, all these like random places you never would think, oh, there's actually probably a Filipino there, you know? And so I think about like these people in random places of the world who are listening in and and hopefully, not only are they being inspired, but they also get to see themselves in these interviews and these people that we interview. And one of the biggest things I think that came up in this first season was this idea that we aren't Filipino enough. I feel like that was like a theme for every guest. So many people were like, oh, yeah, I get feedback that I'm not Filipino enough, or, you know, whether either because they're half Filipino or maybe they, they weren't born in the Philippines or they don't speak the language or they're just not as connected to the culture as other folks and that was that really took me by surprise cuz I've always felt that even though my you know my family has done so much for the Filipino community here in America I was I've never really felt Filipino enough And so I thought that was so interesting, you know, even though I work for a Filipino American nonprofit and I have a Filipino American podcast, (laughs) but this like judgment that we're not enough, I think was one of the biggest lessons for me as a host and producer of this podcast. But I think it's like, even if you take the word Filipino out of that statement, a lot of it is, again, rooted in colonialism you're not enough. So who are these people on a panel of judges that get to dictate what Filipino enough even means? (laughs) You know, like, is it Filipinos who are colonized? Is it Filipinos who are indigenous? Is it Filipinos that can, like, speak the pre-colonial languages of the Philippines? Like, what is this definition of Filipino enough, right? I think it's all very bizarre. (laughs) But again, like I said, I think it's all rooted in col- colonization and colonialism and this idea that you have to do
2: tick off certain boxes to be enough. I think a lot of times people make choices about whether or not they're enough when they measure traditional measures of success, like grades, test scores, stats in a sports game, like who's on TV, who's on the big screen, it could be anything. What I think is interesting is that you've created a podcast that is, you know, being listened to. And that's already changing the way in which we measure success. The stories, the stories. I'm going to ask you a little more about some of these episodes I know some of these people. Let's go into Josh's episode a little bit. What in Josh's episode do you feel like people need to listen to? What's something that he said or something that he shared? What I love about Josh is
1: not only is like he made it big time, right? <laughs> he is like the face and host of Blues Clues, Nickelodeon. He's being watched by millions of kids everywhere. Um, but what I really appreciated about his interview was how humble he is. He is so humble and genuinely nice. And two His understanding that he couldn't be where he is today without his community, whether that be his family, who literally sacrificed so much for his artistic work, or to his Broadway community and all of the actors that he's been in community with in New York. And so, him acknowledging that and seeing, like, you know, there's a lot of messaging about being an individual in America. And I feel like as Filipino people, it's all about tribe. We are a tribal people. And so for him to sort of understand that too, with his success, I think, was eye-opening for me. Cause a lot of American actors or or I would just say white actors will say, Oh yeah, I, I worked hard and it was because I killed it at this audition. <laughs> you know, but he really gave credit to the people that actually helped him with his audition for blues clues. And took the time to coach him with his acting or singing. Um, and he shot out those people and give thanks, gave thanks to those people on our podcasts, regardless if they're listening or not. And so I appreciate that about him, that he understood, like, this is a community effort. I wouldn't be here where I am today without all my success, without the people who've helped me be where I am, pushed me, inspired me. And quite literally like help me book this audition. And
2: that's what I really liked about him in, in our interview together. Josh is so genuinely sweet. Yeah, I get a toothache. <laughs> he's so, he's sweet. so sweet. Um I really appreciate, you know, like him and what he's able to inspire, you know, not just being um a host of blues clues, but You know, he was on Broadway for many years. Yeah, he was in Aladdin. Um, He was in Aladdin, yeah. I want to ask about Ruby Ibarra because everyone wants to know about Ruby Ibarra. Like, what is something that Ruby said during her podcast that really sat with you, that moved you? That was another one that was like, this is
1: my favorite one, even though it was like (laughs) so early on. I love Ruby. I have so much respect for Ruby and and the work that she's doing, especially her starting her own record label, Bolo. Shout out to Bolo Music Group. But one of the things I think that I left with was her idea of disrupting the racism in her industry and how when she first started, she had all this pressure and she also did it to herself where she... Would change her accent to be more Amer- m- more American, less Filipino, in order to be accepted in the music industry. And it really wasn't until she understood, oh no, standing in my Filipinoness is actually a superpower. Yes, and her saying those words and her really reflecting on that, I think, opened something up within me too as a podcast host and producer, that, you know, yes, there's a bunch of Filipino podcasts, but I think oftentimes because of capitalism, we get stuck in scarcity, and we're like, oh, if there's a Filipino podcast, then why would anyone listen to my podcast? (laughs) Like, this whole crab mentality thing, like, we have to be in competition with each other. But hearing her say that made me realize there is room For more than one Filipino rapper, there's room for more than one Filipino-American podcast. And the more, the better. And that's what I love about Ruby. Again, it stems into community, right? It's her work as a rapper not only is about being who you are and unapologetically showing that to the world, but also raising the collective with you and inspiring other rappers you know so like during our interview she was shouting out other Filipino rappers that she listens to um, which I feel like is such a beautiful thing because when you have a platform like you do like Ruby does it's a superpower to use it you know, it's a privilege to use it, and I, And she understands that, and she's so wicked smart. That's my East Coast coming out. <laughs> she's hella smart. So it was such a joy just being in space with her and exchanging these ideas of racism and the effects it has in the industry, <laughs> and the power you have when you stand in who you are and really. Be not only proud of being Filipino, but like being unapologetic about it. Because I feel like, especially when I was, you know, growing up in college and beyond, we had so much messaging from either agents or industry folks that, no, just be vague. Just be, you know, multi-ethnic vague. Don't say you're Filipino. You know, just be Asian. Or get rid of the accent, (laughs) you know, or we already have one Asian, we can't rep you. There's so much racism that happens to us in the beginning of our careers for her to like, be really open and honest about all that stuff. I think, again, is not only inspiring, but it's powerful. She's just a powerful panai. And yeah, I think that was the biggest lesson is stand in who you are and be unapologetic about it. And also know, like, you're not creating art for these white people. <laughs> you know, We're creating art. We're creating a table for folks that look like us, that maybe think like us, that want to see change and-, and want some more disruption in this industry. So let's stop
2: caring about what they think. <laughs> Yeah, we're doing it for us and the future generations. Let's talk a little bit about future. Okay, if you could have anybody on this podcast, who would that be? And let's try to manifest it. Ready, set, go. Bretman rock. Ah!
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm very close. I am like, like that Kevin Bacon six steps away from Kevin. I'm like one Or two steps away from connections away from Bretman Rock. One of my past guests, his wife is really good friends with Bretman. And they even like went to Bretman's house in Hawaii. So I'm like, I'm so close to getting on our podcast.
2: I can feel it. Okay, okay. (laughs) I am excited and I can't wait for that episode. Bretman Rock, we are calling out into the universe. (laughs) Disrupting all the space, and we are manifesting you yes. to be on this show. I love Reuben, and I love like, it's like speaking of disruptors. He
1: freaking disrupts billion-dollar industries all the time, like the makeup industry, the beauty industry, you know, media. Like he freaking said, "F you guys, I'm gonna be who I am again, unapologetically, and y'all just catch up." And the world loves him. Like He has such a huge following because he inspires folks to do the same. And I think that's a testament to the kind of work that he does and who he is and the permission he gives other folks to be who they are unapologetically and express themselves and however they want to. And that's what I love about him, and that's why I would love to have him on our podcast. And I would love for my son to be inspired by him.
2: I love that. I am sure your, your son is inspired by all these podcasters, but I have a feeling he's really inspired by you. Um, and so I'm really um, excited to see where he goes and how he grows in the world because he has all of this that you have literally quite literally set the table for. I'm going to do one last question. It's a, it's a full circle question since Nicole loves full circle questions. I'm going to bring us back to our ancestors. And I'm wondering what you think the ancestors think of your podcasts. What do you think your dad would say to you about these podcasts? And what do you think your Uncle Pat would say? You know, my dad was so funny. He was
1: really emotional. I think my dad would cry. My my dad was <laughs> this really emotional <laughs> guy, and I'm an Aquarius, so I don't cry often. We have this like kind of stoic <laughs> look to us uh, and energy to us, but I think my dad would be crying tears of profound joy and pride in the work that I'm doing right now. That I, I've ch- I'm choosing intentionally, quote unquote, not to work for the man, man, <laughs> and to leave something for my son and continuing to do my art my way. I think when I first started uh, creating and being an actor, a lot of the stuff that I wrote and created was for Hollywood's acceptance. And in a lot of ways, he would say that, but he'd also be like, but do whatever you want, you know? Get money however you want, man. I can't tell you how to do your art, you know, but I think he would be very proud on on how I have evolved as an artist and I continue to do it and also how I incorporate art in my son's life. And then I think my uncle, I think he would just be, he'd be smiling right now. He'd be listening to every episode. This is what I love about my Uncle Pat. He was a musician as well. He played jazz. Actually, that's how my mom and dad met. They were in a band together. and My dad and my uncle were in a band together, a jazz band in college. And my mom met my dad at one of the college parties that they played at. <laughs> and so... My uncle was always supporting me and my cousins in whatever art form we decided to do. And even when I was, like, doing stand-up comedy and opening for comedians like Joe Coy or Hasan Minhaj or Dave Chappelle, my uncle was so proud of me. And he would consistently ask to, like, see tapes of my work or where could he find things online to listen to. And he was always, like... But he was the kind of uncle that would like clip out newspaper clippings if there were any of me. And so I think he'd be listening to every episode and telling all his friends and the family about it. Which is funny because I shared it with my family and I only think like a hand. Not even my mom listens to every episode. <laughs> not even my husband listens. But my uncle would listen to every episode. And what would he say? Again, I think he'd just be so proud and one of the things that he like posted on my Facebook before he passed away was, I knew you'd be a star and you're doing it. And I'm so proud of you. So I think it would just be more words of encouragement and more just like keep stepping into your greatness, Nikki. You got this. Keep
2: going. Don't stop. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nikki. I appreciate you and love you so much. Um, This was a beautiful episode, and I'm really excited for the world to hear you and the ways in which you have become a disruptor and use this podcast to disrupt all kinds of ways in which we've been oppressed for generations. I will say that we would not be here if it wasn't for you, period. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.
0: One of the ideas I wanted to send her from this conversation was the importance of storytelling. In the conversation, we learned how Nicole's relationship to this idea evolved when she found old letters from her grandmother while cleaning her mother's house. And she's reminded that documenting and archiving our experiences have value, even when we can't immediately see its effects. What a powerful reminder especially today as our culture is conditioned to determine value through likes and reposts, that what we create is ephemeral. We never truly know how or when things are going to hit. Forty years after they were written, those letters inspired a shift in Nicole's professional journey and led to the inception of this podcast where... Our host hopes that these conversations can one day inspire similarly for her son. For episode number 20, I felt it was important to hear from Nicole. Not only so we as an audience understand her better as a creative, but to gain insight on the effects and impact of meaningful conversation. It's kind of like a status update for this work. One of the biggest learnings Nicole has from these conversations is that she and her guests become mirrors for one another. Listening to the stories of others can help us articulate and process our own experiences. It can aid in developing empathy and help us understand how we're more alike than we are different. Through her conversation with Josh De Cruz, Nicole is reminded that individual success is typically a community effort, and it's important to give credit to the people that helped get us here. In her family's stories, I found it profound that the events that inspired Nicole to both leave San Francisco for New York and return a decade later was Memento Mori. Both her father's passing and the onset of the pandemic were tacit reminders of life's impermanence and the spark for her to create with intention. There's an old saying I love. I plant trees under whose shade I never expect to sit. I feel that encapsulates the work that we're doing here at Cultural Cultivators. On the production side, Nicole, Iggy, and I never truly know how these episodes are going to be received. We just kind of just put it out there. But we continue with the work with the intention that it'll have a life beyond us. It's an offering and we feel grateful for the opportunity to present these stories. You can find Nicole Saliver on Instagram, at kindredkapwa. This episode of Cultural Cultivators is hosted by me, John Reyes, and a special thank you to Dr. Alison Titianco-Kubalas for conducting today's interview. Stay in touch on Instagram, at culturalcultivators, Or you can follow me at Stank Palmer. This podcast is co produced by Balai Creative, Kindred Kapwa, and myself, and is a product of Cultivate Labs.